0: Why should, you know, Joe Schmo down the street have to pay taxes in order to heal my arm? Because I voluntarily chose to get in a fistfight with somebody.
1: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guy, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty lefties to another edition of Lions of Liberty, your home for great conversations about, yes, that's right, the ideas of liberty. This is the 247th episode of this program, which means that you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 247. And if you are a fan of this program, there are a couple other Libertarian podcasts out there that I know you guys are going to love. You've got to check out Roger Paxton's Lava Flow podcast, the Johnny Rocket Launch Prad, and of course, our friends Chris Spangle and the We Are Libertarians podcast. Check them all out. My guest today is an MMA fighter based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. He's also a very outspoken Libertarian. That's how he got on this program. I'm pleased to welcome Mitch Twizzler Bones, Thompson, Mitch, my man, are you
0: ready to roar? Well, I mean, but first off, I mean, how fitting is it that you have a professional MMA fighter on the Lions of Liberty podcast? Exactly. I feel like I should be introducing you like, hey, Mark, welcome to Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm your guest, Mitch Thompson. Are you <laughs>
1: Uh well, I'm always ready, man. This is why I do this show. Cause I like to, I like to get in there and roar about Liberty. And I know you're, you're, you roar yourself. Cause I've, I've seen a couple of your fights now. I tracked a couple of them down on YouTube and, uh, you, you kind of got, you're
0: I I don't know how to say it. You're a, you're a wily son of a gun. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like to roll around, do a couple fightings fights every now and then. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that comes across
1: watching your fighting is, um, I mean, obviously you're trying to win a fight, but you, it, it comes across, you're
0: kind of trying to have some fun in there. Would you say that's, that's accurate? I'm always trying to have fun. My uh, my walkout song is actually "Now You're a Man." If you've ever seen Orgasmo from uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker back in like the '90s, essentially it's just a song they're saying "Now are you man? Are you man? Man, man, man." man." (laughs) I mean, I'm always having fun in there.
1: Well, that's great, man, because no matter what you do in life, even if it's something like fighting, which a lot of people might not think is fun, it's important to be having fun doing it. And then that's why I do the show, too, because I have fun having these conversations about the ideas of liberty. So I I don't think I could really start off this interview any other way than by asking you about your nickname, Twizzler Bones. Where did that nickname come from? What's it all about?
0: So when I first moved here to Utah, here about in, uh, I think it was like 2012, I was fighting, uh, fighting this kid, and he was giving uh, me all these arm bars and these these triangles and stuff, and I was just getting out of them, just like nothing. The very end of the round, he catches me an arm bar, and my arm is bending back, oh, like 200, 220 degrees. And I'm just smiling, giving a thumbs up to everybody. Everybody's, like, screaming. And then the bell goes off, and everyone thinks my arm's broken. I'm like, no, I'm good to go. Good to go, and I choked him out in the next round. So. Oh, they,
1: they tried to stop the fight, thinking your arm was actually broken?
0: No, the uh, the round was over. Oh, and I so- back to our corner and then the ref came and he made sure that my arm wasn't broken. I'm like, Oh no, I'm good. Good to go.
1: <laughs> I mean, is that, did that even hurt at that point? Or do you just have some uncanny ability to have your bones bend further than most people?
0: I, I didn't even realize Had I known it was bending back that far, I probably would have, you know, addressed it a little bit more, <laughs> right. but I had no idea that, you know, I had this weird bone bending ability. I mean, people try to put me in arm bars all the time and it just, arm bars aren't even things on me anymore.
1: Well that sounds like a, a pretty good skill to have in uh in your line of work here,
0: yeah, for sure,
1: so why don't we uh tick back the clock a little bit? Why don't you just tell us uh we'll we'll get into your you know your ideas about libertarianism and how you got into that stuff in a bit, but I kind of want to learn a little bit more about your fighting career and then how you got into m m a in the first place
0: well it was I, I grew up wrestling I've been wrestling my whole life I wrestled in college and everything in high school, and then when I was probably about uh freshman sophomore in high school i started watching the ultimate fighter on TV and started getting really MMA, and then became a hardcore fan. And like, I, that's basically all I do now is fight.
1: That's awesome. man! So you, you were just hooked right away. You, you kind of already had that, uh, that instinct in you from, from your wrestling days. I mean, you just, the idea of, of that kind of fierceness of competition, is that what kind of drives you?
0: Absolutely. I mean, like, Fighting—it's—it's it's similar to wrestling in the sense of the competition aspect, but the—the the fighting is—it's just so much more when you add in the jiu-jitsu aspect and the—the the kickboxing, the muay thai, and all that is just—it's so much more than than a uh, wrestling was. Really, I uh, really quickly adapted quickly into it.
1: So as I was mentioning, I, I watched a couple of your fights uh, before the show here, and I, I saw uh, so one of them was actually, I think I watched your last amateur fight, which I believe was against a guy named Weston Wilson, and your first pro fight, which was against a guy named Jordan Marriott. And both of those fights you finished which I, with a chokehold. I believe it was like a rear naked choke. You can correct me if I don't have the term correct, but that, is that your favorite move? Is that your go-to finisher, or did I just happen to catch you know two two fights where you used it?
0: No, actually, that that is kind of my thing. That last fight with Weston Wilson was actually the one where I got my nickname, Twizzler Bones. If you remember, oh, it's that of,
1: fight, right at the end with it, the bu- That I fight, see.
0: yeah. It's all making sense
1: now because yeah, that, yeah, the video is actually titled "The Origin of Twizzler Bones," and we'll we'll link to that in the show notes for this
0: program. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I mean that that's a uh, rear naked choke is definitely my thing. I've finished uh, maybe like eighteen, nineteen fights with the rear naked choke, so definitely my go to move there.
1: Awesome. So when did, you, when did you actually make your fighting debut? And then when, when and how, I guess, did you ascend to a, a pro level?
0: I made my amateur debut in April of 2009. I had started training back in like 2007, and I wasn't 18 yet. And my parents wouldn't let me fight until I turned 18. So I turned 18 in March and had my first fight in April. That fight was actually, uh, I ended up knocking him out in like 13 seconds. That's not a bad debut. This is
1: very, very good. Must have helped the, mean, help the confidence to start off by just knocking the guy out that that quick.
0: <laughs> so quick and so easy. Had no idea. But, I mean, I was hooked since then. And uh, my pro debut, I made it in uh, – so I, I I used to – I'm from Idaho. I was fighting out of Idaho for a few years, and I eventually started – decided that I needed to take this career more seriously. And uh, I decided to move down here to Salt Lake City where Jeremy Horn is, and Jeremy Horn's my trainer. And I moved down here in 2012. And I think I made my pro debut with him in uh, 2013. I had about nine amateur fights with him in just that, that one year. Then uh, I ended up turning pro against Jordan Marriott in uh, May 2013, which was uh, Jordan Maria who was 4-0 when I first fought him as pro. He had finished all his guys in the first round, so we knew it was going to be a tough fight, but I, I ended up choking him out in the first round. So Just like that. So you, get, you, get, you have a
1: knack for debuting uh, at pretty well, huh?
0: All my debuts have worked out real great.
1: So I'm curious, you know, like I said, I wrestled in high school, and even even when I felt pretty confident, I mean, obviously my first few matches, I just wasn't that good, but or I mean, I wasn't I wasn't Twizzler Bones, you know, I didn't I didn't come firing out of the gates winning my debuts, but you know, eventually I got a lot better, and but even when I got to a certain level of confidence, I still had a little bit of butterflies before a match. So and that was when I knew nobody was going to punch me in the face or try to break my arm or any of the stuff that you have to go through uh, the possibilities of anyway when you're stepping into the I don't know if it's an octagon, you're always but when you step into that fight, so what, how do you kind of prepare yourself? How do you get into the right mindset that you need to be into to really let loose and have fun with it? And you know, just get get yourself in the right mode.
0: Well, I mean, it's a lot. It's a few different things. It's obviously you're you're going to be nervous for every fight, regardless of what you're trying to do. You, uh, I know, like like I said before, I always try to have fun in my walkouts. I'm always dance around. I, I actually wear these uh these rainbow tights in my fights these days. They're like like they've got like rainbows all over them. Like, like, a, like what a Peter Pan would wear, almost. You know? <laughs> do, do you think
1: that has any kind of like psychological effect on your opponents? Do you think they're just thinking, well, what is, what's wrong with this guy? What's this guy with the rainbow pants? And does that, you think <laughs> it in any way distracts them? I mean, do you, do you get distracted by things like that? If people do have kind of quirky moves in the ring or, or wear a weird outfit? I, I always wonder what, what the mindset of a fighter is, if, or if you're just really able to focus on, on the fight at hand.
0: I mean, it does bother me, but I think, I think a lot of people are head cases out there, and any little thing will throw them off their game. I know in my last fight, I I was on top of the guy and his cor- I was right in his corner. And his corner was yelling at me like, "Hey, hey, Mitch, would it will bother you if uh I lick your ear right now?" I'm like, "Oh please, <laughs> please lick my ear." Are there any rules
1: against that kind of thing? I mean, I mean, I guess it sounds like fair game. It's just kind of messing with you, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like in a professional fight, in, like in the UFC, that that might be like they might stop somebody from doing that. Maybe I'm wrong. No,
0: really- it, it actually happens all the time. Really? They, uh I mean. It doesn't really affect anybody, really, but people people like to think it does. Right. So.
1: Doesn't affect Twizzler Bones, huh?
0: Doesn't affect no Twizzler bones. (laughs) All right,
1: so as I mentioned, obviously we first kind of came into contact because you actually you started your own Facebook page. I think it's called the Libertarian Fighter. Do I have that right? And uh, just to kind of put your ideas out there and and get some conversation going. So uh, I mean, first of all, how did you first get interested in libertarian ideas? What what got you to the point where you want to be kind of publicly outspoken about about your political beliefs?
0: To be honest, it was it was South Park that got me into libertarianism back when uh, I was going to college. You know. I was really in college just to wrestle. I wasn't really there for learning, which is not the best idea. I don't recommend that to anybody. But uh, you know, I started watching a lot of South Park back then. Uh, I started looking to Ron Paul. I started reading Rothbard back then, and you know, it, it's essentially evolved quite a bit since since then. I, w- I wasn't really all that politically active until probably recently, until Bernie Sanders started popping up and all these horrible socialist ideas that people just don't seem to understand. They're not going to benefit anybody. And, and did that really
1: just drive you not seeing all suddenly seeing all these Bernie Sanders memes pop up and just people listing all, all the promises and all the the wonderful things that they just I guess thought could just be magically produced by the government and, and with all the knowledge that you'd gotten over the years and all the thought you put into this stuff, it just made you go, oh no, I can't just I can't just sit here and watch this drivel go on.
0: You just can't let it happen. Like you can't let people think that like this is going to be prosperous that this is gonna how we're gonna grow our economy and get you know actually help people out and actually get people higher paying jobs like this this is not how a free market works even though you you, you
1: disagree with the solutions presented by bernie sanders and and the people that support him i mean do you in any way kind of Kind of see where they're coming from in the sense that we do clearly have a very rigged economy. We have a system that that does find a lot of people being kind of shut out of work in many ways. So I mean, for for me personally, I, I'm with you. I think that these solutions presented are are not good ones. But that I, I can I'm not surprised. I guess I should say considering. All the things we've seen in our government over the years i'm not surprised that this kind of movement can spring up when somebody is coming along pointing out injustice in some way and then making a bunch of promises which well, i mean they're easy to say but they're a lot a lot more difficult to deliver in reality
0: yeah i mean like i i do get where they're coming from the most people who are progressive they want to help people they want to make a better place but then none of them have done any of the research and they're just being told hey just more government is going to help all our problems this is going to solve your issue here going to solve your issue here none of them seem to even care about the economic side of it it's all it's all about you know helping out the people make it, stealing money from this this group of people and give them to other groups of people through various different types of programs
1: what kind of, th- what would you actually kind of tell a progressive person who maybe, maybe a friend of yours or something like that, who might be, be having this conversation with you and putting these ideas out, but you, you see them as an honest person, like you just said, you think that they mean well. So what kind of arguments do you actually use to try to sway them and say, you know, like, I get where you're coming from, but this is just not, this is, this is not the way to go.
0: Let well, I me mean, essentially a lot of them are into the, uh, the free healthcare, the universal healthcare. And I always ask them, do you believe that that's going to make it cheaper Cause the government has never produced anything at a cheaper or higher quality than the free market has.
1: And you know, you're actually, you could be a potential, you could use yourself as an argument against universal healthcare care. be like, Hey man, I'm, I'm a fighter. I don't think you should have to pay if I, if I get my arm broken in the ring.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I'm the one who's voluntarily choosing to go into that fight. Like why, why should, you know, Joe Schmo down the street have to pay taxes in order to heal my arm? Because I voluntarily chose to get in a fist fight with somebody.
1: Right. and and to me that's really no different than if you got injured because you went skiing or you went snowboarding i mean when when everyone is quote unquote covered by this some you know supposedly benevolent force it's going to get overused because there's no risk evaluation involved all those calculations just go off the table because hey it's paid for right
0: yeah i mean people don't seem to really care uh, when you take the actual cost out of something people don't don't usually care nearly as much as at like how much they're going to use it. So obviously, if the healthcare is free, I, I'm going to be much more careless with how I'm how I'm treating my body, how what what I'm putting in my body as far as nutrition wise, and as far as like actual risky decisions.
1: I'm actually kind of curious now that we're talking about it. What what is the healthcare situation with a fighter like yourself? Do you have to purchase your own healthcare? And and if so, does does the fact that you are an MMA fighter make that more difficult? Do you have to pay higher rates because of you know a, a theoretically risky activity that you're participating in?
0: I actually have a, a full-time job as a cabinet maker as well, and I usually just get my uh, insurance through them. Gotcha. But uh, the, the the actual fight promotions will provide insurance as well. The state athletic commission makes them do that. Okay,
1: so if anything were to happen in an actual fight, you would be covered through that. Yes. Well, let's let's use that as a nice segue because I, I really want to talk to you about these these state athletic commissions. Now, I mean, I know. I don't know how many other libertarian fighters you know. I don't know how how much politics is even discussed. I mean, I I listen to Joe Rogan. He's not exactly a libertarian, but he has he has a lot of thoughts about this stuff. And but he does seem to think that these commissions are necessary. He just you know thinks some of them are, are abusive in their kind of how they operate. But I mean, when you when you look at a guy like Nick Diaz who gets suspended for five years by the Nevada State Athletic Commission, uh, essentially for for smoking some marijuana, which as far as I know is really not a performance answer in any way. To me, it seems like there are. At least a, a massive abuse going on in some circumstances so what, what's your thoughts on these athletic commissions overall
0: i mean isn't it is it such a joke that people think that marijuana is a performance enhancing drug
1: it, like I my, it
0: boggles my mind <laughs> i would love if everybody ever fought was on marijuana right they just came into the, into the cage just completely stoned out of their mind it would be the best please oh
1: please eat this brownie before we fight that would be that would be wonderful
0: but uh, i mean no i i I'm strongly against athletic commissions. I don't think they serve any purpose. They, the athletic commissions essentially oversee all combat sports, which is, you know, boxing, white, MMA, all, any sport that requires punching and kicking. But you see, there's no why, why does combat sports need an athletic commission over it where no other sports have a government-regulated athletic commission? Why is combat sports different? Where, where you compare football to athletic sports, football is actually significantly more dangerous. You see much more brain damage in football than boxing and MMA. So what, why, why are we putting this on mixed martial arts and not on football?
1: You know, you're playing into this this theory that I've always had, and it's just a theory because I'm not a doctor or a you know scientist or any of that stuff. But I mean, to me, the, the in MMA, the fact that you do not have a helmet on, you do not have you know you do have some some you know hand covering, but they're not not boxing gloves on. It basically ensures that no one can really do massive damage to each other because you you just can't use your hand your fists on a head like like in that way, you know. And there there's there's, there's consequence. There's a certain amount of kind of of force you have to put into things, whereas in you know in football where you have a helmet, in boxing where you some some boxing has a helmet, but some doesn't, but all, all boxing pretty much has these these giant boxing gloves. People are just wailing away at each other and just beating each other's brains in. So I mean, do, do you see any legitimacy to my theory there? That I mean, you seem to be because that you're stating these are known to be more dangerous sports but the i think the perception out there is that combat sports are far more dangerous when if you actually look at death rates and i mean i don't even know if there's been a death in combat sports that i can think of but i i've seen a boxing death this year so i, I mean i know
0: those occur yeah there, there's been a few in boxing uh there's have unboxing every year but mma is i think i think since we since mma became a sport and back in 1993 i think we've had like maybe 12 deaths in the entire, like, 25-year history. You know, in boxing, there's probably, you know, 50 a year, and football is just astronomical.
1: I mean, especially if you take into account – the deaths in football that come years later and the, and the problems that come years later. I mean, we've seen so many NFL players. Now we've seen people commit suicide uh, and that's really been recently. Thanks to a lot of more research that has been going into this, that that's being attributed to, you know, taking massive concussions, taking repeated hits, uh, you know, blows to the head over and, over and over and over, over, over a period of years. So uh, for people that just don't maybe understand the sport as well, can you just describe why, why that's not nearly the, the kind of danger in MMA? Why, 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 you know, why not having the, these giant gloves in, in, you know, it might seem to a lot of people that having these giant gloves protects people more, but why why is that not the case?
0: Well, you see in MMA, obviously, there's there's the grappling aspect involved. And so, like in boxing, the only goal is to punch each other. Right. In MMA, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to take you down. I'm going to try to pass guard. I'm going to try to get a submission on you. And, and when you compare it to, like, football, you you know, you fight, you play football 16 weeks in a row for, what, like, five, six months straight all the way through where, it, where I'm fighting. I'm only fighting, you know, three, four times a year, 15 minutes at a time. I'm not playing these four hour football games where I'm repeatedly getting smashed by these entire huge bodies trying to just, you know, cripple me. I think people get misjudged on combat sports because the goal is obviously to hurt the other person where, you know, in football, the, the goal is to just throw a ball, run across uh, the end zone. That's an interesting
1: take because yeah, in in football, the while people take much harder hits, it's not the point of the game. It's just something that happens in the game and is a, a part of the game whereas in MMA that's actually is the actual stated goal to hurt somebody to so to to get to victory. So I guess uh, on the surface I could see how people would think that, you know, just just if they're not thinking about it too deeply.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in fighting uh, there, it's obviously a very dangerous sport. I mean, nobody's trying to pretend it's not but the, the injuries in fighting are very, very minuscule. I've never had a fight where I've had to go to the hospital or I've had like some kind of significant injury. I mean, the worst thing I'll ever get is a cut.
1: Well, Mitch, I'm not quite done with you yet, but we do need to take a minute out to hear a quick word. Do you think that that's kind of why these athletic commissions exist? But then just because of the public perception, which then, you know, kind of, you know, finds its way into the government area of things. And then they say, well, these are more dangerous sports, despite the lack of evidence for that. And therefore we have to have these very special commissions to oversee
0: them. Well, actually we have an athletic commission because uh, anheuser Bush mocked them. Back in, uh, back in like 19, that's was 97 Anheuser-Busch was the main sponsor of uh, boxing of the major boxing events, and uh, the MMA was starting to pick up, and they saw this as a threat because they they didn't want people to switch over to MMA and start watching that instead of boxing. So what they did is they they bought John John McCain, everybody's favorite politician, <laughs> good old King Neocon John McCain, and uh, he essentially went on this whole long like three or four year spree of just trying to get MMA banned and just saying. And it's human cockfighting, just having no information on it whatsoever, and essentially got all the state athletic mission all the states to ban mixed martial arts except for Nevada and New Jersey. Nevada and New Jersey were the only ones to keep it keep it around because he got them to put in place the state athletic missions.
1: I never knew that whole story. I never knew the relation to to of Anheuser Busch to this whole thing. So basically they wanted to shut out the competition and and, and that they seem to have successfully done so in, in most of the country, huh?
0: Yeah, I mean every state except I think Montana has a state athletic commission now. So, and if you actually if you go try to fight Montana, they'll they'll ban you from uh or not ban you, but they'll uh, put you on a suspension for fighting in a non commissioned sanctioned area. So that's that's kind of how they control the whole market. They don't let people go fight wherever they want. You have to fight in the ABC -approved, uh, approved commission.
1: Wow. So you mentioned John McCain there, and I I, I saw you post a little rant about uh, the Ali Act recently, and I, I believe he was a proponent of that or may even be a proponent of this new version that they're putting forward. But basically, they're trying to, first of all, actually, could you describe what the Ali Act is and then tell people out there how they're trying to apply this to mixed martial arts?
0: Essentially, the Ali Act is just like a federal sanction body that, like, right now, all the state commissions are kind of their own entity. They they answer a little bit to the ABC, which is the Association of Boxing Commissions, which is like the U.S. Athletic Commission, so they don't really do anything all that spectacular. But essentially the Ollie Act is going to – they're trying to put a federal commission over everything so everybody has to obey by the same rules. Essentially what they're trying to add is they're they are trying to get it so you can't sign with a promotion for more than one year. So like say, say I go fight for the UFC. They are not going to allow me to sign a contract with the UFC for more than one year. There's a lot of fighters who don't even fight within a year. When they when they first signed that contract, right. so a lot of times like you you'll sign that contract with the UFC and you won't even get to use it and you'll and the federal government will force you out of that contract before you ever even get to fight for them.
1: That seems so crazy.
0: <laughs> and
1: what's the supposed benefit of this act then? To, I guess I guess in theory it's supposed to be for the good of the fighters, but it, it doesn't seem like it really is.
0: Well, they essentially they they don't want people locked up in contracts for you know five six years, but I mean if you're voluntarily choosing to sign into that contract i mean what is what does the federal government tell you that you can't
1: like so if a fighter happens to you know they they start off and they don't you know they're not they don't have that much of a record or reputation so they sign a a big long deal and then they become you know a huge deal a huge fighter and they want more money and they don't want them locked into this contract where they maybe make less than they think they should make for the last few years of that contract is that that the idea
0: yes that is is the idea they're trying to keep you know they're trying to essentially open up the markets and Get people to be able to fight, you know, wherever they want. Essentially, the problem with that, like we see in boxing, is we get two hu- like two or three huge, huge, huge stars because there's no promotion and nobody cares about the undercard fighters. The undercard fighters get paid significantly less in boxing than they do than in, in, in the main card fighters. Like essentially, like a uh, Floyd like Mayweather when he fought Pacquiao made, you know, I think it was like 180 million dollars, where the undercard fighters, undercard fighters made about twenty thousand. I mean that that's a significant difference.
1: And you think that the the Ali Act actually contributes to that?
0: Yes. Because I mean because the promotion can't get behind like since when you're watching MMA, a lot of times you're just like people think the MMA is actually just the UFC. So people will be watching UFC because it's the UFC. In boxing there's not that brand. There's like sixty different promotions and people just know it as boxing and so the promoters aren't willing to get behind the lower card guys as much to promote them so people know who they are. So there's, there's less people, less people know who they are and obviously the less tickets they're going to sell and the less money they're willing to pay them.
1: So that this Ali act basically, uh, basically makes it so it gives them less incentive to actually promote these guys because they can only get them to these short-term contracts anyway. And if if they build a guy up, then he'll probably just go somewhere else for more money. So why would they, you know, why would they even want to invest that time in someone that they can't actually even invest in long-term if they want to?
0: Exactly, and then you get these huge stup- superstars that take you know the entire you know portion of the payday, like like Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao, where nobody else really has a chance to really make like their name.
1: And now they're trying to apply this same law, this same rule to to mixed martial arts. Is that right? Correct. So who's who's behind the push for that? Because I mean, obviously there's there's going to be you know different bodies in any sport that's going to favor of this legislation, and and if it comes forward, it's probably because someone someone out there is lobbying for it. So who do you think is behind the push for this?
0: Uh, I know John McCain's behind it a little bit. I mean, I don't think he's too terribly involved at this moment. But there's a senator out of a uh, like a local senator out of Oklahoma. I don't remember his name that really brought this up to everybody. He's been really pushing it the past couple of years. It, in the last Last three or four months it's really started to pick up
1: steam. Well, luckily we got people like you out there. So does this cause conversation? I mean, I like I said, I don't know how much how much political talk is there within within other fighters. I mean, do you have this kind of conversation uh just based on kind of the stuff that affects you guys directly? Or I mean do you end up kind of broadening the scope at all? I mean, do you really get into like you know, Ron Paul and Murray Rothbard and that kind of stuff, you know, with with, the, with your fellow fighters?
0: I mean, I absolutely do. I mean, that's basically all I talk about when we're <laughs> Here in the gym, but I mean, most people, most people don't aren't really all that politically involved. Most people are just you know typical meathead, just trying to do their you know their sport, just trying to get in shape. But, I mean, I'm I'm always trying to get people to read Rothbard. I actually got porn my trainer. I got him to uh, start reading man economy and State, so we'll see where that goes.
1: Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> when's it? When's he gonna have time to train you, man?
0: <laughs> uh, that
1: that's quite that's a that's a steep one.
0: Yeah. Just, I just I check I, out I,
1: this 1000-page tome and get back to me, man. <laughs> just just let me know how it goes. <laughs> Well, that's cool, dude. I'm glad I'm glad you're out there. I mean, obviously you're you're unabashedly talking about that stuff, and you you're not a shy guy. I can tell that from seeing you in the ring and from seeing kind of uh, your antics out there and uh, your antics on social media. And I'm glad to see that you uh you also apply that to uh you know to the way to your approach to politics and to uh, not being shy about that either. So, Mitch, I want to uh, encourage you to keep up the great work. Before I let you go, why don't you just give everybody out there an idea of where they can find some of your fights, uh, where they can check out what you're going on, how they can follow you, maybe on social media. Just give them the whole Twizzler Bones around about.
0: Yeah, you can uh, add me as a friend on Facebook, just Mitch Thompson, or you can and you can uh, give my athletic page a like at Facebook.com slash Twizzler Bones. Add me on Twitter at Twizzler Bones. And yeah, I think it's at Twizzler Bones on Instagram as well.
1: All right, man. Twizzler, Mitch Twizzler Bones Thompson. Check him out if you're ever in the, in the Salt Lake area. Maybe he'll be having a fight when you're there. If not, be sure to follow him because he's an interesting guy. He's got a lot to say. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mitch Twizzlerbones Thompson. I can't get over that nickname; it's just too cool. Uh, you know, and it's really fun to be able to have some of my interests in life kind of converge sometimes. And and when I found out that there was this guy, Mitch Thompson, this MMA fighter who's also a Liberty guy, well, I had to reach out. I had to have another great conversation about the ideas of liberty with this guy. I remember watching the first UFC back in the early nineties. Yep, I'm old, guys. I'm old. And it was, it was so crazy back then, because back then you didn't even have weight classes. You just had, you'd have a little skinny guy going up against a big fat guy. There were nowhere near the amount of rules and regulations related to it now, and I think a lot of the rules that UFC has instituted are good ones, and they're rules that they didn't really need the government coming in and telling them to make because they became logical rules for the growth of the sport. But there's one thing we can be fairly certain of in today's day and age, and that is if there's something out there That a lot of people tend to enjoy, whether it's smoking a joint or whether it's watching a couple of dudes punch each other in the face and try to bend their arms in weird ways, there's some busybody politician somewhere who's going to try to butt their nose in and get involved in it, and it really never seems to turn out too well it's really funny when it comes to the subject of martial arts. I'll, I'll hear some people say, like, oh, you like martial arts? You like, you like MMA? That's just barbaric. I thought you were libertarian, the non-aggression principle. Well, <laughs> you know, there's, I don't live and die by the non-aggression principle. I, I do think that there are some problems with the sense of, uh, you know, only explaining things in those terms, although I, I do agree with the principle you should not attack other human beings. But in a situation like this, this is two human beings who have both agreed we are going to enter into combat in the venue of a sporting event. And either of them can quit at any point in time. So to, to call this aggression, to try to tie this in with a non-aggression principle in any way is just, it's just plainly silly, really. And I think anybody that does so just really doesn't understand the concept or is, or is just trolling. <laughs> but I hope you guys did enjoy my conversation with Mitch Thompson and all the other great conversations I strive to continue bringing here directly to your earbuds each and every week, several times a week. And now i got to hand the baton off because this Friday we're going to hand things over to my man, John Odermatt, the host of the Weekly Felony Friday. And, of course, we'll get back to some more great conversations next week. So until then, folks, live long and live free.